This is Nick Reich here with Zachary Fillingham of geopoliticalmonitor.com, and we're going to be talking about uh, Sudan and the recent developments that have occurred there. So, Zach, tell us a little bit about the latest developments, including the Sudanese protests and standoff. Okay, well, um, we have a few articles up on the website about this topic because it's an interesting one and it's been developing quickly over the last uh, few weeks. As we know, there have been protests in Sudan since late last year. Uh, The protests started out primarily on economic matters, uh, specifically a series of measures passed by the Bashir government that had the effect of increasing the prices of basic foodstuffs and petroleum. Obviously, the government didn't want to do this because it created... um, a predictable backlash among uh, Sudanese citizens, but it's it was essentially forced to because the Sudan uh, national economy has kind of been in dire straits over the, for the last couple of years since uh, South Sudan split, taking with it about three quarters of the country's previous petroleum revenues. So the protests started in December. Um, they started in the countryside. They quickly moved to the capital. Uh, where they increased in size. Um, And uh, one interesting thing about these protests vis-a-vis previous protests in Sudan, obviously it's a country with uh, a long history of protests, several points in its past. There have been major protest movements that have actually removed governments from power. Most recently, there were protests in the Arab Spring in 2011. Those were clamped down on and extinguished. There were also protests in 2016. But these ones, unlike recent previous examples, um, they have a a lot wider spectrum of support within Sudanese society among different ages, among different uh, professions, and throughout the country at large. Um, uh, Most importantly, including the middle class. So basically, the economic pinch is affecting everyone, and it created this widely popular protest movement. So The Bashir government, President Bashir has been in power for nearly three decades now. Initially, his government tried to crack down on the protests, tried to take some momentum out of the movement by declaring a state of emergency and uh, offering some minimal concessions, offering not to stand in the next presidential elections, which he had previously said he would for his uh, NCP party. But um, as we know, it wasn't enough. The protests continued. And on April 11th, uh, Bashir was removed by the military. Um, He was placed under house arrest, and uh, the military announced that it would be forming a transitional governing council, and which would rule the country for two years, uh, over which time a a new sort of political order could be established. Um, It also announced that there would be a three-month state of emergency. So these announcements weren't enough to placate protesters. The protesters kept the the heat on um, because uh, their central goal was and continues to be uh, the establishment of civil rule, civilian rule, and the government government concessions weren't enough. Uh, And since then, we've we've sort of uh, seen... um, Intermittent negotiations between the two sides. Uh, The protesters continue to insist on full civilian rule, whereas the military um, is offering... I mean, like, the the sort of specifics of this process are kind of opaque, 
But uh, the, the military is offering sort of piecemeal concessions. The latest one was that uh, three of the more unpopular figures stepped down from the military council, three figures that were attached to the, Bashir, the previous Bashir government. And um, that's where we stand right now. Basically, the protests are continuing, and so are the negotiations between the two sides. And Zach, what do you think is likely to happen next? Um, well, when we're looking ahead, like there are two things that are important here. One is the the ongoing unity of the protest movement. So, so up until now, the protest movement has has been extraordinarily um, united in its message, and and that we see that a lot with um, similar protest movements, similar mass mobilizations throughout the world. When you have this all all encompassing, all uniting goal to rally around. It's a lot easier to keep um, everybody on the same page, right? And that goal at the start was the removal of Bashir, and then that that initial goal transitioned well into a full establishment of civilian rule. Um, so long as that holds true, it seems like <clears throat> the protest is able to maintain its coalition and maintain um, a high level of pressure against the, on the military council with which it can extract concessions. And then the second one would be the state of the economy. The Sunni's economy is in a, a dire state of affairs, which is what led into this crisis in the first place. And um, basically anything that helps the military council alleviate those economic stresses will help make its own case to, um, if not stay on in the transitional period, then at least uh, have a, an, an important part in whatever transitional authority is established. And uh, whether or not it can stabilize the economy is dependent on the um, largely dependent on potential assistance um, from foreign backers. And we've seen already Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates step in to provide assistance to the transitional military authority. And Zach, this sort of protest is reminiscent of the Arab Spring protests that we saw back in 2011. Uh, what are some of the parallels? Uh, and is this, uh, in effect, uh, a similar event, a similar continuation of uh, that sort of uh, populist uprising? Yeah, it definitely looks similar um, <clears throat> on the surface, for sure. I mean, what we're seeing in Sudan so far looks incredibly similar to the, the, the opening phases of the Arab Spring in 2011, where you had mass mobilizations uh, geared towards the removal of long-standing uh, dictators in the Arab world. Um, and also similar to the Arab Spring in 2011, these mass mobilizations, they're not necessarily politically motivated at their core, they're economically motivated. And the, 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 the realities of that economic situation lead into the, the political demands, right? Um, in every case in the Arab Spring, there was an economic... Uh, there was an eco economic um, factors driving the protests. And uh, so, so in that sense, it's similar to the Arab Spring protests of 2011. But the question is, what's going to happen next? Like, what, what's the second phase of the Sudanese protests? What does that look like? Because, you know, uh, when we look at the countries of the Arab Spring, we see a divergence of results. Um, you have Tunisia, which is arguably the success story of the Arab Spring, um, albeit a limited success and one that one is, uh, it's a story that's still very much being written. Uh, you have 
Egypt, which uh, backpedaled on the revolution. And I think that uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens here with Sudan, because obviously, since it's happening in 2019, the Sudanese uh, protesters, they have the benefit of looking back at some of these Arab Spring examples. And when they do so, they're definitely going to look at Egypt and they're going to learn from that example. And it's and the, the lesson they're going to take from it is probably that um, the moment you take your, your foot off the gas, so to speak, the moment you let the military have too much of a continued role in the post-revolution order, there's always going to be a risk of them stepping in at some point in the future when some of the um, momentum has 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 uh, seeped away from the protest movement and reestablished their own previous well what what pretty much resembles the previous order so um that that kind of lesson might be informing the their ongoing sort of insistence that uh that sudan moves to full civilian rule and and, uh, basically not taking anything but a transition to full civilian rule because they're probably the protest leaders leadership are probably worried that the second that they accept anything and the second that all of the people who came to Khartoum and who have been protesting and supporting the movement second those people start going home people start going back to their everyday lives it's classically very difficult to get them back out onto the streets right so they they need to press their advantage now and they'll continue to press their advantage so, so that's the Egypt example. And then, of course, we have the far more tragic example of Syria as well that spiraled into um, <clears throat> a civil war. And while I don't necessarily believe that this is in the cards for Sudan, it also needs to be pointed out that there are lots of uh, militias and paramilitary organizations uh, op- that operate in Sudan. And um, <clears throat> it, it inhabits a very geopolitically dangerous region. Um, there's obviously been a long-standing civil war in South Sudan that's recently come to a tenuous pace. Um, and there's also been long simmering conflicts both in Darfur and along the southern border. So this is something to keep in mind. So whereas the start is very similar to the Arab Spring, we still don't know how it's going to end and whether, whether you know which of the Arab Spring countries it's going to resemble months from now. And Zach, you spoke a little bit about some more regional players being involved in supporting the uh, the military control of the nation. Uh, what about the United States? Is the United States uh, taking any action uh, that will impact these protests and the resulting consequences? The United States has, has remained relatively um, mum on it, has not taken a sort of strong stance either way. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, um, it's interesting to see where the United States goes from here. Obviously, thinking back to the Arab Spring, um, you know, the Obama response to Egypt was was very strong. I mean, it was, uh, you know, basically (laughs) getting on board with the protesters, even though I'm sure the Obama administration had its uh, concerns about the the possibility of the rise of, of Islamic political forces within Egypt. But uh, the Obama administration went very much sort of all in, threatening military aid, just everything that they could do to sort of um, support the more, I guess, 
human rights oriented strain of its its foreign policy ideology whereas now we're seeing a similar situation happen and it's not even i mean sudan is not an ally of the united states right uh, it's much more um it's it's much more shocking to go in for the protesters in Egypt, a long-standing ally of the United States, than it would be here. But in keeping with the foreign policy line that has sort of firmly established itself during the Trump administration, where uh, the quote-unquote America first um, belief, whatever, we're not seeing any strong American response on these protests. And that just might be hedging bets too, not wanting to get too much involved in what is not really a strategically important country, especially now that it has been sort of uh, removed of its, its, uh, its energy importance with the secession of South Sudan. Um, But yeah, we're not seeing much, much so far. We're not seeing much from any, uh, any real Western sort of uh, like, we're not seeing much of a response from the European Union either. Well, Zach, given that the United States hasn't ta- has taken an interest in Venezuela and Nicaragua and the uh, political uncertainty there, um, how much do you think uh, is it just a lack of interest in uh, the country uh, and the geopolitical consequences of the uh, protest and standoff? I think that's an interesting question. I mean, um, wh- like it's an interesting question, and it's a question of 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 whether this this sort of um, like uh, I don't know how to put it this sort of less moralistically driven foreign policy on the part of the West whether it is the exception of uh, an inward looking Trump presidency or whether it's it's a it's a new normal in international relations and the argument for it being a new normal would be primarily the um, well, you could you could basically say two things. Maybe, on one hand, it's the sort of um, it's the legacy of these moral adventures on the part of the United States in Afghanistan and Iraq, when a case for human rights was made, but ultimately, you know, those conflicts didn't really add up to the narr- the initial narrative. Um, and then after that, you have the Arab Spring, which also, you know, those protests, when they broke out, there was a there was a Western narrative of like liberty realized, blah, blah, blah. And then, um, you know, when the reality of 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 the uh, regime change set in, none of them lived up to the promise of of the initial revolution. Um, it could be that or it could be shifting power dynamics within the international system insofar that when you have the immediate Cold War era, post-Cold War era, you had a sort of hegemonic presence uh, of, of the United States and its Western allies, where they were the preeminent economic and military powers within the system. They were obviously pro-democracy, uh, liberal, liberal actors. And if you as a sort of middle or, or developing country, if you want to tap into their, their finance, their capital and their, their military assistance, you needed to match their, their liberal orientation in your governing structure. But now, fast forward, not that long, I mean, fast forward a decade, um, maybe the decade after the great financial crisis, 2008, 2009, we have a much more 
balanced international system, a much more multipolar system. It's not totally multipolar, right? You can, you can make an argue it's much more economically multipolar now than it is militarily, because the United States is still sort of preeminent military power, at least in terms of its military spending. But um, so you have a much more balanced uh, international system in terms of economic weight, and the the second lar- second largest uh, economy in the sy- in in the world is China, right? China obviously does not have uh, these sort of moralistic uh, pro democracy leanings. So you have countries like China, um, not necessarily China in the case of Sudan, but China's probably. Uh, I, I'm actually not sure whether China is involved. China would be involved, but I think China put its uh, uh, got behind South Sudan because, as I said before, now South Sudan's the one with the uh, energy reserves. But um, you have these liberal actors who can step in and actually stem the stem the fiscal bleed in these countries and and prop them up, right? Uh, and these liberal actors, they they did they don't necessarily care about the human rights. Uh, impact of the regime that they're supporting. Uh, so in the case of Sudan, we're already seeing Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates step in and pr- uh, provide some important bridge support for the transitional authority, uh, $500 million for the Sudanese Central Bank and um, another $2.5 billion in petroleum, medicine, and food stuff. So, uh, and also... Like, obviously, that's a huge help in stabilizing the economic system for the transitional government. But there's also the matter of recognition, right? Uh, So it's not just the West and the United States who's the kingmaker in recognizing um, a disputed government anymore. It's you could make the argument that that regional uh, associations and and, uh, regional organizations are, are much more important uh, particularly the African Union, what the African Union does about Sudan, that that has become the more sort of compelling moral and legitimizing factor. Well, in a sense, that uh, makes sense in that uh, a regional collective would have more uh, knowledge and aligned interests uh, with a, a country in the region. So yeah. perhaps in a sense, uh, that will bring about more aligned or uh, results that are more consistent with uh, the interests and desires of the neighboring countries. Yeah, for sure. And also, I mean, like, um, whether or not the Af- what the African Union does with it, of course, is a total, totally different matter that uh, taps into totally different geopolitical calculations than, say, the United States. But, um, you know, like the whole human rights debate is become... Uh, sort of a tough one to progress right now, I think, in terms of uh, the moral authority of the West has been somewhat compromised over the last decade for a variety of reasons. So, I, and I think you see that, you definitely see that in action with Venezuela too, where in Venezuela, everyone's just like, oh, okay, you know, um, you know, fool me once, <laughs> uh, fool me 10 times, that sort of thing. So from a practical level, if the protests are successful in taking some of the power from uh, the Sudanese military and putting it in the hands of uh, the people or implementing some democratic reforms, what kind of impact would that have uh, both from a governance perspective and uh, from a day-to-day perspective for uh, citizens of Sudan? Will it make a difference given the current economic situation? 
Oh, it, de- it definitely has the potential to make a difference. But, you know, I'm like, I mean, as a Canadian, I do believe, uh, just talking my own personal editorial view, obviously, um, moving towards a more liberal order, one that sort of guarantees fundamental human rights, that's a positive thing in the lives of uh, Sudanese citizens, right? I like, in my opinion, obviously. But um, getting there has always been the problem, right? So even, you know, even this era of uh, this end of history era of universal Western values um, and the sort of Bush era doctrine of, of promoting democracy basically by force or, or otherwise, you've always had the question of how to develop and nurture institutions that work, right? I mean, democracy is a hard system to establish because um, basically, you need to establish, well, first of all, you need a, a stable economic and security situation. And then secondly, you need to establish institutions that people that are legitimate in the eyes of the people, and that people um, voluntarily abide by, right? You voluntarily abide by the rule, you voluntarily believe that the government in power is legitimate. Uh, if your side loses, you decide to... Um, you know, you decide to wait for four years and try again, that sort of thing. So like, it's a set of rules that everybody chooses to play to. And to establish those rules, you can't just come in day one and be like, here are the rules and then have everybody believe in them, right? And when you have this kind of mass mobilization that leads to regime change, it definitely creates a sort of interim chaotic situation where um, on one hand, like the hope and the promise of the revolution creates a bit of space uh, for people to be patient and for for you to set up new institutions and for people to believe in them. But on the other hand, you, you also have all of these sort of shifting and fluid security dynamics and the shifting and fluid loyalties that are both hard to predict and um, depending on how things shake out and and potentially sort of inevitably how the movement fractures, um, it can sort of often cannibalize itself from within. And then you have um, a situation where the strongest party just steps in and, and takes power. And then usually by the time that strong party steps in and takes power, everybody is so tired of the, um, the sort of uh, inter the, in the, the, um, the chaos in the meantime that they actually accept it because that's the price of stability in their mind. So long story short, like there's a lot of potential here, just like any revolution, right? We're in the hope phase. Uh, so if the protesters, if they manage to secure and, and um, as, as is stated in the, the article that's been pu- published recently on the website, um, the protesters at this current moment in time, the protesters have all the leverage, right? They're in a better position. Um, they're united. The military has proven itself unwilling to, thank, thankfully, fire on its own citizens because it, in, its own citizens are basically reflective of the military itself. It'd be like shooting your own children. Um, and while you have this huge coalition, 
all the powers on the protesters. But this coalition is going to start to whittle down and there's going to start to be divisions. And then that's when things get interesting. If the, if the protesters are able to secure civilian rule and start to implement their own program, and presumably they would, they would be like in the short term, they would receive assistance from some from various uh, Western institutions, like various Western and regional institutions, right? Whether it's the IMF or the EU or even the AU, whatever, right? So they would have a bit of bridge financing. They would have a short window of opportunity to start providing positive change in the people's lives. But as that, when like basically they're on the clock because if they're if they're unable to change the the situation in the short amount of time they're allotted, people become um, disillusioned with the revolution rather quick. And I think you see that kind of in Tunisia, where even though it's a success insofar that the democratic order still exists, people are very uh, skeptical of the gains, particularly the economic gains that the revolution brought. Well, it's an exciting time for Sudan, and we'll definitely uh, keep on writing on this topic uh uh, in the weeks ahead and to our listeners you can check out the article uh, relating to this topic on geopoliticalmonitor.com and it's titled Arab Spring Redux Sudan Protests Enter New Phase uh, so thanks so much Zach for sharing with us your thoughts about Sudan uh, its protests and possible political change and to our listeners uh, looking forward to next time talk to you then